Hey, it's David Plough. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Bernie Sanders has suspended his presidential campaign. Valiant effort, uh, two in a row, where he, uh, I think, inspired many people around the country, particularly young people. Did exceedingly well back in 16 and started off very strongly in 2020, looking like the clear Democratic frontrunner as we got close to Super Tuesday. But Joe Biden was able to consolidate support and uh, build a delegate lead that was insurmountable. I think Bernie Sanders saw that reality and has suspended his campaign. Says he's going to stay in, wants to get some delegates. I wouldn't get overly exercised about that in terms of party unity. That's his right. But the general election started. It actually started some time ago, but now we can more officially move on to unifying the party. It'll be a lot of hard work ahead for Joe Biden personally, for Bernie Sanders personally, for other party leaders, including the Obamas, Nancy Pelosi, the other candidates who ran in 2020. Uh, but it's also on all of you out there. So um, I write about this in my book not knowing exactly who the two final contenders would be, but how important it is for those of you that were on the winning side of this. And some of you might have been with Joe Biden the whole time. Others, you might have been pretty recent converts to him after your first choice candidate dropped out. But it's incumbent on you to let the Sanders people know that you need them. We want them. We welcome them. We have to be Trump. Understand for some of those folks, they're going to be very, you know, it takes a while to get over a loss. Um, you know, this is probably uh, almost certainly Bernie Sanders' last run, and he had such fervent supporters. So some people are going to take some time. Some people are going to want to look at information. Some people want to have a conversation with you now. Others may wait, but reach out. Um, hard to host people in your house, but when you can do that, again, that would be a great thing to do. Invite the Sanders people over from your community. Uh, talk to your kids. Um, they may be back in your house now, so have that conversation. Um, you know, do video calls, do phone calls, Facebook chats, uh, phone calls. Just we've got to, you know, at the local level, it's going to be important. I have confidence that the folks at the very top will do the right thing, and I think Bernie Sanders will campaign with vigor ultimately for Joe Biden. But you know, folks at the local level where the work gets done need to know that they're welcomed, that they're respected, that they're understood. So uh, it's on all of us, I think, to do the right thing here um, because we need to make sure we're. The foundation is strong enough as possible uh, while we take on Donald Trump. And, you know, I think uh, from a policy position standpoint, convention, uh, choreography, whether that's virtual or in person, um, the kind of activities that Bernie Sanders is doing on the stump, um, you know, the Biden campaign definitely wants to, I think, not just send signals, but in reality, uh, make it as easy as possible for Bernie Sanders, not just voters, but his organizers um, to get on board. And I assume you'll see some of the Biden um, staff reach out to the Sanders staff, and the Sanders staff has a lot of talent there. So hopefully they'll um, bring some of those into the campaign. So that really uh, finally sets us up officially for the general election. Donald Trump, uh, instead of you know spending time talking about what he's doing to protect American lives and the American economy, tweeted a lot. Uh, yesterday about our primary process and Bernie's being robbed and why is he still staying in to get delegates. And so, you know, Trump's mind is never far from the general election. In fact, I think that's the only thing his mind is on. So we have to move in that direction. And my guest today is Jim Messina. Jim led Barack Obama's uh, campaign in 2012, has run 
Senate races and congressional races around the country, spent a bunch of time on Capitol Hill. So, Jim, uh, because we were running for re-election in, in 2012, uh, spent a lot of time studying all the prior re-elections, uh, Bush, Reagan, Clinton, um, even going back farther than that. Um, and what I really want to talk to Jim uh, about is what the Trump campaign's been building, some of the advantages they bring into the general election, what might have changed uh, with some of those advantages, pro or con, with the coronavirus. And then, um, you know, talk about what Joe Biden has to do in very short order here uh, to build the kind of campaign uh, really overnight that's going to be required to beat Trump. Despite the coronavirus and the fact that we're probably going to be having massively high unemployment in the fall, um, you know, Trump uh, doesn't have a high ceiling from a vote standpoint, but he's got a very sturdy floor. Um, and particularly in battleground states, you can see how we can get to a win number. So this is, we better all assume this is still going to be a, a brutally close race and it's going to require all of us to do everything we can. But most importantly, it's going to require the Biden campaign uh, to get up to fighting shape quickly so that they can contest this campaign uh, with great ferocity and skill uh, in the battleground states. Uh, so I, I hope you uh, enjoy this conversation with Jim Messina. Jim Messina, thank you so much for joining us on Campaign HQ. My pleasure. Hi, Pluff. Hey, so, you know, I was planning to have you on to talk about general election planning running against an incumbent pre-COVID-19, but I think it's it's even more critical now because both of these campaigns are doing a lot of work behind the scenes to get ready for the general election in whatever form uh, that takes when we bring our attention back to politics. But I want to start having you know, managed an incumbent president's re-election, and I know you closely studied, as I did, all of the previous ones. Explain for our listeners the types of advantages Donald Trump, not his poll numbers, but what advantages he brings organizationally, financially, data digital into this election that no matter his opponent, you know, is going to really struggle to catch up to. Yeah, look, there's a reason, David, in the past hundred years why only two incumbent presidents have lost re-election. And it is because of these inherent advantages that you talk about. You know, and, and I really put them into buckets, right? Um, first, there's just the the field bucket, and there's a digital bucket, then there's the money bucket. But if you just think about the, the first one, you know, the field advantage, you have an incumbent president who can draw whatever crowds he wants. He can announce whatever things he wants. He has a cabinet who can travel for political to raise money to do announcements. He has an entire government that's coordinating to make sure they get their messages out every single day. You know, one of my colleagues is Nick Pius, who you remember was the field director in Florida uh, in 2012 for President Obama. And he said to me today when we were talking about your show, look, you know, just the advantage of having the ability to show up and do a rally or do any sort of thing using the kind of the bully pulpit of the White House is incredibly helpful. Then you think about all of the announcements that each one of those agencies is going to make all the time, every single day. Then you think about the sheer just ability to coordinate. This is kind of geeky Pluff Messina talk, but you know he has a fully functioning RNC that knows who the nominee is, that knows... They're his bank account that knows they wake up and everyone in that building and in every branch of appointed government knows their job is to uh, help Donald Trump get reelected. Uh, then you switch to kind of the digital space where, you know, I thought Biden 
won a justified primary victory, you and I would probably say that digital isn't his strong suit coming into this. So he's got to build infrastructure. And in 2012, Pluff and I used to talk about building kind of Obama TV or Obama channel and really thinking about all of our huge email lists and our digital followings as a way to give them information about Barack Obama and use that to go talk to their friends and family. And, you know, the numbers are pretty stark. Joe Biden has 4.6 million Twitter followers. Donald Trump has 75 million. Joe Biden has 1.7 million Facebook fans. Donald Trump has 28 million. Donald Trump's outspending Joe Biden on digital right now, uh, four to one. You know, Biden's first virtual online chat got 5,000 people. You know, just one with Laura Trump got 945,000 people online. Then you think about the ability to, you know, decide what you want the news to be. And you have an entire press corps that is functioning as sort of your amplification vehicle. You know, right now during COVID, Trump's getting an hour and a half to two and a half hours of free TV coverage a night. And some of the networks have said, okay, we're not going to give you the straight feed, but some are, right? And then everyone is packaging this stuff. And, you know, if you're just a swing voter out there, right now you're seeing and hearing way more about Donald Trump than you are anyone else. You know, I'm a big believer in kind of this, some of this online sentiment analysis. I'm seeing kind of what people are talking about. And combined last week, Biden and Sanders struggled to get 10% of political conversation, uh, whereas Trump is hovering just above 40. And remember, coronavirus and COVID-19 and all that stuff is over 50, right? And so Trump on his own is is commanding four to one over Biden and Sanders together, um, which is, you know, a very, very big advantage. And so if you just start thinking about some of those things, you start to realize the hurdle that anyone running against an uh, incumbent president uh, faces. And, you know, look, I think that if you combine his plus that I can cuss, so his shitty response um, on COVID and then the his economic problems, because his only thing propping him up with some of these voters has been his economic issues. Those two things combined, I think, are historic headwinds for Trump to w- walk into. That said, you know, I think there's starting to become a little bit of a narrative of, you know, oh, my God, we should win this. And, you know, while I think I am bullish about Biden's chances in a general election, and if you had to ask me to buy the stock, I would buy it. You know, I think if you just started to think about some of the stuff, David, that you and I had the ability to do and see and hear, we haven't even talked about money for a second, um, you know, you'd have to give Trump a, a puncher's chance here. Now let's talk about money, because for better or for worse, and I think you and I would argue it's for worse, but for better or for worse, money is the oxygen of American politics. And, you know, we've already talked a little bit about Biden's struggles to get his message out right now. Then he has, you know, kind of unprecedented money problems. You know, Trump and his RNC coming into this month had almost two to one what we had in 2012, Obama had, going into this time. Uh, I can pull the exact figures here somewhere. Um, Now, Biden can't do events. He doesn't have a cabinet traveling for him. He doesn't have a running mate uh, who can be a surrogate. You know, all he kind of has is him and Jill and a few of his, his friends. And, you know, we've never tried to do 
online fundraising, you know, from a uh, kind of large donor perspective. Biden has always been a very good large donor fundraiser, people, the kind of traditional Democratic donors like. But right now, you know, he can't do events. My wife's co-sponsoring a virtual fireside chat with him. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be very interested to see the take on that, because right now, you know, the presumptive nominee will go into a town, will do a three or four tiered event and could walk out of, you know, Detroit with a million or two million dollars. I am struggling to believe you can do that online. Right. Uh, and so, you know, some of these digital things that you and I think you need to invest in uh, are going to be a problem. So I agree that, you know, Biden's up against the wall in money, although I think sometimes people look at it as a purely comparative exercise. And what Biden needs is the money he needs to win the election, to run the kind of campaign, right? It, he's not going to outspend Trump. So I think he's going to struggle to raise that, but I think that's the marker. But let's dive a little bit into data. I think data and politics, sometimes I think uh, when you look at, at coverage of it, I think is is misinformed, right? Because what, as you know better than anybody, uh, as it relates to political data, you know, there's a lot that's available: voter data, consumer data, commercial data. Everyone's going to have that. The question is, how do you enrich your data? And one of the things I think Trump's done, and he's the only president to start running for re-election the day he took office in his first term, right, has been to do mostly. Um, social media advertising, they use these rallies to enrich their data with the view being that they can enter the general election with a much more precise sense of the voters in states like Wisconsin, Arizona, and Florida. So they enter this, you know, April now with a much better sense down to the voter level of how to put together a winning coalition. So can you talk a little bit about that, what they've done and the advantage that could give them in, in the fall? Yeah, this is one of my concerns, right? Because as you know, uh, in the Obama re-election campaign, we decided that data was kind of the only avenue to the truth. And we invested really heavily in data and, you know, got criticized for it while we were doing it because it was incredibly expensive. Um, I think the point you made earlier is important for people to think about. Donald Trump's team filed for re-election the week he took office, and they have been spending money um, on some good things and some bad things. I think you and I have been skeptical about the amount of money they've spent on rallies, but recently they've been doing really good where they, you know, ask everyone for their digital stuff, et cetera. And I think this is the question about how much money Joe Biden needs versus what Donald Trump needs. Because if Joe Biden is going to run a traditional kind of field first campaign, you know, that's a, in contrast to the Trump campaign that, that, by both their spending and what they've announced are really a digital first thing. You know, I may be the only person other than David Puff in the world who's a big enough geek to build Donald Trump's budget on his own FEC reports. I would take all his FEC reports and just look and see how he's spending money. And if you kind of look at digital data and rallies, that's the grand preponderance of it. And, you know, they have two audiences that they're focused on that I don't think people truly understand. One of their audiences is these persuadable voters. And a reminder that, that 6 million Americans voted for both Donald Trump and Barack Obama. So if you count them as the swing vote, and then you look at just say the three states 
of uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and um, Wisconsin, there's a little bit over a million of those Trump-Obama voters. And they are attempting to build really, really deep connections um, with those voters. And then second, they have a second kind of target audience that I don't think people are focused on, but David, I know you've been talking about this on your on your podcast, is that they are trying to expand the electorate in kind of an un unprecedented way. They are trying to make sure that there's a whole bunch of people who didn't vote in 2016. You know, the the press kind of loosely calls these white nationalists who don't typically participate in uh, the electoral process that are sitting in some of these states. And part of the incumbent advantage is Trump has spent the last three and a half years really kowtowing to those folks and giving those folks deliverables saying, I understand you. I need you to be part of this process. And Pluff and I are old, so we remember in 2004 when the Kerry campaign told everyone they had won on election night because they got to their Ohio number. And Bush had expanded the electorate with a whole bunch of people that people didn't see coming and won Ohio because they were able to get a bunch of new people. That's what Trump is doing to just a much bigger uh, degree. And he's doing it with a whole bunch of name acquisition. So when you look at how he's spending his money, He's not doing just straight up ads. He's asking people uh, through the campaign and through the RNC for their views on issues that they know are code for Trump supporters, things like immigration, uh, you know, some of the other kind of right wing, you know, gun uh, gun rights, etc. As they try to build a digital first, and not just who these people are, which is kind of you know the advance you know, both Obama campaigns did, but more importantly who these people are, and then asking their friends and and, uh, supporters to contact those people, to start persuading those people, and begin programming uh, direct messages to those people. And that advantage, while we had our 28-way primary, um, is a very serious advantage because they've been out there beginning those discussions with some of these voters that are going to be targeted. Right. So on data, so so both in terms of the registration and turnout audience you talked about, and then the persuasion argument, which is larger than just Trump-Obama, right? But that's the core. Your point is that's all based on a foundation of really rich data, right? So they know who those people are. Joe Biden might not yet know who they are, right? They know what they're responsive to, what their concerns about Trump are. Uh, Like they just know everything there is to know about these voters in battleground states. I mean, that may be in a little extreme. They don't know everything yet, but they start with a pretty good head start, correct? They start with a good head start. Four years ago, eight years ago, you would have said the Democrats had a dramatic lead in data. Now, I think you'd have to say coming out of this primary and given four years and all the money they've spent that Donald Trump's campaign has an advantage. Right. So um, what about social media? So, you know, I think in 08, if we were not Internet first, I think we were certainly um, an internet focused campaign by 12. It was both internet. Uh, Facebook had become more important in politics just in those four short years. The Trump campaign, which is led by a digital marketer, Trump in his own crude way, it's not based on science, is a social media first president. So talk about that, both in terms of what you're observing that they're doing and, um, particularly if we're heading to a mostly virtual election, let's knock on wood and hope we aren't for a bunch of reasons, but what, it just seems that that campaign is suited for the times and understanding where people are living. And there's plenty of smart people in the Biden campaign. We'll get to them later. But it seems like when your campaign manager and your candidate understand the medium, Kennedy in 60 versus Nixon as a good example, it does give you an advantage. 
Yeah, I mean, people would say in 08, you guys, Barack Obama became the first internet president, right? He understood it. Um, I think there's a couple things. One, Paul, if you know how much I dislike the current president. Um, that said, you know, I now do mostly international elections, and I make all my international clients basically study Donald Trump online and study what he does and what his campaign does, because he is sort of right now the benchmark on how you do this. And I think part of it is Trump for whatever goods or bads people think of him, and I think 99.9% bad, um, understands who his audience is and continually gives his supporters a, a unvarnished feed of what he wants them to know. And you can literally look again back to the sentiment analysis of his people then look at those cues and follow it, and they all go out to their friends and family and really move it. And when the Trump campaign, when they've decided to sort of parrot him and whatever he's leading, you know, the run-up, yes, they got their ass kicked in 2018, but I thought it was an interesting test because uh, Puff remembers this, but in 2011, we took the entire Obama data campaign down to a special election in Wisconsin and figured out all the goods and bads of what we were building and got our butts kicked, but came out of it way more knowledgeable. And if you look at the last two weeks of the 2018 election, Trump moved to the to the supposed caravan stuff that was coming up from Central America through Mexico and made that the issue. And you looked at everyone, both his campaign team, the RNC, the candidates, everyone moved on that message. And it was an interesting test for them. And I've seen his campaign manager quoted since then talking about that test and talking about the ways they're learning to do, do these things. Um, you also look at the kind of content they do. And this is a challenge, I think, to the Biden campaign is even the White House, where it's super fucking hard to get the rules to allow digital stuff, they are a digital first uh, kind of medium, right? I mean, the White House press secretary got canned or resigned today and hadn't had a press conference in her entire time there. And mostly what she did was sit there and produce digital content, right? And they literally moved this stuff out every day, all day, in, in my opinion, ways that aren't kosher and that the Bush and Obama White Houses never would have done, but they're doing it and they literally wake up and think digital first. And I don't think that's the way that we think yet. Right. No, I've, I, I very much agree with that. And, you know, to your point on what's permissible and it's not, speak to this for a minute. So while incumbents have historically had advantages and, you know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan all had um, more than a passing interest in getting reelected, as you know. But, you know, it was not the thing they spend most of their time on. And when their lawyer said you couldn't do something, we didn't do it. Uh, so talk about, you know, a president who only cares about one thing, getting reelected, will use the machinery of government in clearly illegal ways, has this entire uh, conservative ecosystem. While Bush had an 04, it's advanced so much beyond that with, uh, you know, social media, these phony online publications that pop up in battleground states. So, so I don't think you can even look at the advantages of incumbency historically uh, and then look at Trump and try and draw a straight line because he's taking it to an extreme. So, you know, if you're sitting in Philadelphia when they can all gather back in Biden headquarters, how do you factor that into your thinking? Because there's no low this guy won't sink to. There's no law he won't break. But also when someone sits in the most powerful office the world's ever known and is only obsessed about one thing, you know, that can produce some votes in places you need it. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I would think a couple things. I mean, you saw that this week, right? With the getting rid of the IG that's supposed to overlook, um, oversee all of the COVID stimulus spending, right? right? The reason why they got rid of that person was because that is the biggest candy jar in the history of American politics. That is $2 trillion. You know, I was the White House Deputy Chief of Staff when we had the first stimulus bill, and we would sit in meetings and discuss how to get this money out with the IG's office, with all the people who would, who would be overseeing this, trying to get this right from a legal perspective. I promise you the fact that they fired that person this week is proof they don't plan to do that at all. Right. And we haven't even talked about the defense stuff, right? I mean, you know, you could totally see President Trump saber rattling uh, to fix poll numbers in some of these places from a defense perspective. You know, it, but it does go back to something that, you know, the folks listen to this, Plop was senior advisor when I was campaign manager, and not more, not many times more than one, I would call David and say, why can't we do this? And Pluff would laugh and say, because people said we can't. And that was it. It was just, that was it. Um, but Pluff would also say to me, we just need to control what we can control. And if you're Biden, I think that's kind of how you got to view this, right? You kind of got to assume that Trump's going to break every rule and break every law and do all this stuff. And there will be great lawyers that Pluff and I love suing all over the place. But if you're Biden, it kind of goes back to David's point about the money. You just kind of got to say, what's my theory of the case? What do I got to do? And I just can't really worry about it. Because I promise you that they are going to park those cabinet secretaries and park that stimulus bill in the battleground states and do things that you and I never would have contemplated. And I do believe it's one of the challenges that people aren't talking about right now. And the brazenness of getting rid of the inspector general in the middle of all this is just proof of it. I just think, though, you kind of got to assume it and just go run your own fucking show. Well, that's what Biden has to agree with that. I mean, you know, you you spent a lot of time on the Hill and in the White House. I mean, seeing what he did with the IG, uh, and, I, and, and I know that people are hurting out there, and we've got to get people assistance. But if I was the Democrats on the Hill, I'd say we're not going to spend another red cent uh, until you uh, reinstate oversight here, right? I mean, this is an outrage. And, you know, Trump will want to, you know, we're going to have another round of stimulus, maybe another round after that. But we just can't allow this to stand. I mean, what's your view on that? How likely do you think are Democrats on the Hill to have the spine and the skill to back Trump into a corner on this? I think they're going to have to, right? Because I, I do think this is like a systemic risk. This is a unprecedented, I mean, I called it a candy jar earlier. I mean, $2 trillion, even if you take out some of the mandated spending, you're still just a small business loan. You're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, right? I think the Democrats have got to, I mean, you know, as, as David was alluding to, I was the chief of staff on the Senate side for almost a decade. And, you know, there was no way either party would allow the other party to do this. And so I think that we do have to stiffen our friends' spines to say not one more red cent. And we got to pick a fight over this, right? And like find ways to pick a fight over this because this is just unprecedented and it it, it is government at its absolute worst. And I don't think, you know, here's the other thing. There is like no one in some of these agencies because they've gotten rid of so many talented career folks to really watch the stuff and figure out how this stuff is being done. And the potential for chicanery um, is at an unprecedented high. And I think it's time to pick a fight. Right. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. Well, hopefully by the time this comes out Thursday, the fight will be joined. So I have a question for you. Trump won in 16, underfunded, under-resourced from a staff standpoint. They clearly thought they were going to lose on election night. So um, now it's what's fascinating is now they have all the money anybody would ever want, massive staff. They've been running for three years, amazing data. Do you think there's a, a chance? So you'd say, well, what could go wrong with all that? Uh, so one, you know, us in 12, Bush in 04, Clinton in 96. I mean, you really run as if, you know, you're going to lose, right? There's no arrogance. There's just obsession. The Trump people seem to be pretty arrogant. I don't think it's just an act. And do you think there's a chance be- that coupled with they go from living off the land in 16 to having these massive resources now, will they be a little sloppy? or not in your view. Yeah, I think they will be because I I've you know the interesting thing about this is I remember our Republican friends that Pluff and I know saying at the time none of those Trump people could get a job on any regular presidential campaign. They're just not that talented. And you know now they're kind of gurus or think they are. And part of what you realize in politics is you're never as smart as you think you are or as dumb as people think you you were. Um, and and I do think there is kind of this inherent belief that you know they're going to be able to to define people and you know what you realize is you know both sides are going to have all the money they need um, assuming you can fix some of these problems and assuming it's a normal campaign and we eventually are back to to some ability here um, but I think they're you know they are facing challenges that are worse than challenges that even you and I faced. And I thought it was fucking terrible in in nine and 10 and 11, the economic problems. Um, But, you know, the country got through them thanks to the leadership of the president and got reelected. You know, Trump is walking into, finally people are starting to realize how bad this COVID response is. And his numbers are now underwater on that. You know, if you believe any of the economic forecasts, he's going to walk into this really difficult um, economic forecast at exactly the wrong time. Bluff had it right earlier. People are really hurting out there. Um, and, you know, he's at a difficult time, and yet they still are acting um, like they're the heavyweight champions of the world. And, you know, my mentor in politics said to me when I was very young, we're going to run like we're 10 points down until until they hand us champagne at, at the election night. And and I think that's kind of the one advantage Biden has is they were way underfunded in the primary. They didn't have as much money. They had a theory of the case and they sort of stuck to it. And I think that coming out of that, um, you know, you kind of use those as examples. And hopefully that's a good example um, and hopefully the, the Trump campaign will be a little bit cocky. Okay. So one of the other reasons that incumbents have had advantages, they define the race and they define their opponent before they get their sea legs. So Clinton did that to Dole. You know, George W. Bush did it savagely to John Kerry. Uh, we were not delegate with Mitt Romney. Given Mitt Romney's, you know, conscious, he's like the only Republican with a conscious in the Senate. Occasionally I feel bad about that, but then I get over that and I'm and glad we, uh, yeah, I know. So it's clear that that was something the Trump campaign was going to do. In fact, there's been stories where they are bemoaning the fact that they lost the ability to savage Biden with tens of millions of ads, dollars of ads because of COVID-19. But, you know, it's coming. So I guess my question for you is, when do you think the Biden campaign is going to face what will be an unprecedented avalanche of negative spending 
aimed at preventing Biden from getting his sea legs. And what do you think that'll look like in a you know COVID nineteen world coming from the Trump side? Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's step back. If you're Donald Trump, what are the three things you have to do to get elected? You have to expand and excite your base. I hate him, but he's doing a great job of, of that. Um, you have to fix your economic and fix your problems with swing voters in these states. And we just talked about their theory of the case, how they do that with an unprecedented digital and data campaign. And they're attempting to do that. And then third, they have to define uh, their opponent the way that other incumbents have been able to do that. Because what you realize in any re-election campaign, president, senate, house, etc., the election's either about the incumbent or it's about their opponent. And whoever it's about usually loses, right? So they are going to come out of this primary and attempt to, to absolutely eviscerate uh, Joe Biden. And just if you, you know, COVID notwithstanding, they were ready to do that. They had way more money than Obama uh, had and a kajillion light years more than Bush had uh, in the RNC their super PACs and the campaign. And they were set up to do that. The other thing we haven't talked about um, is, you know, the convention stuff, right? So the other hurdle that COVID has, has caused is now Biden has had to move his convention back three weeks, which for spending purposes um, is a very big challenge. Mitt Romney's campaign manager, Matt Rhodes, has said repeatedly part of what went wrong for them was the time between when they tactically won the nomination and could actually start spending general election money was at that point where David was referring to when Barack Obama's campaign defined Mitt Romney. And that is the concern if you're the Biden campaign. So to your question, David, about when it's going to come, I think that's no one knows, but I don't think Donald Trump's going to care as much uh, about uh, about that question as normal people is. There's this big debate going on in our party about, is it okay to begin using um, the COVID response against Donald Trump? And there are people who feel very strongly about this on both sides. I would hesitate to believe that Donald Trump is going to care very much about when he thinks he's got to go, because they're just going to go. And I think the question is, you know, what I'm sure his campaign's worried about right now is the language and how they do it, right? And you've seen them try to do this a few times. They're testing things out. They spent a bunch of kind of time and money, including some digital ads, saying it was Obama's fault, that Obama didn't get them ready. Then, like last week, they tried this whole narrative of, oh, well, we couldn't get ready because we were dealing with impeachment. And they tried that for a couple of days. And that really didn't stick. And But if you look, you know, they're actually spending some digital money on this. And so, and trying to kind of try these various things. They're already starting to, uh, to send up some trial balloons on how they're eventually going to go after Biden and when they can do it. But if I was his campaign manager... I would not want to get too far into to the summer uh, without beginning this process. Because remember, again, these swing voters think about politics very, very little. Uh, and they're going to, you know, assuming we get back to a normal world, summer's different. You travel, you have kids, you have all this stuff. And so they're going to want to kind of start that definitional stuff if they can at all pull it off um, by next month. At least I would. Uh, and, and I have many more scruples in the Trump for president campaign. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think they are going to play by the same rules or care about the criticism. My suspicion is when the ad uh, avalanche starts against Biden, it's not going to mention COVID at all, right? It's just going to be trying to define him as you already see in Trump's speeches, you know, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to have a gas powered car. You'll have to sell your second car if you're a family. You won't be able to fly on planes. You won't be able to eat steak. All the stuff that we roll our eyes at which works, you know, that, that comes up in the social sentiment. So before we get to Biden, I want to, because this is ultimately about, you know, acquiring the right amount of votes to win. So I have a couple of questions for you. Do you have a sense yet about what you think total national turnout will be in this election? Yeah, no, we were crunching that the other day. You know, we just had the highest midterm turnout in 102 years. Uh, and then you look at the 2019 massive turnout in the governor's races, and that's usually the most predictive thing about the next election. And so the question really, as you build models, is what you assume the turnout's going to be. Um, and typically, you want to look at some of the primary stuff. The primary has been very interesting for that because there are some places where the turnout was lower than Democrats expected. There were some when it was higher. And so I think I want to see a little bit more data before we before we start doing that. Right. So, but so much of the work that the Trump campaign is doing that you talked about in terms of finding new uh, registrants and turning out, you know, Republicans who don't vote very often is to try and increase his high watermark. So I guess I'll press a little bit. So, and so this question I think does determine in part on is our third party is getting 6% of the vote or 2% of the vote. But as you know, Trump won Wisconsin. Let's use that as an example. He himself got, you know, a million four hundred thousand votes and change. Do you think it's possible he could get over a million six hundred thousand, million six hundred fifty? Like, what do you think, Democrat, if you're Biden, this is the campaign? <laughs> you know, how many votes do you need to win? I mean, what do you think it's possible for Trump to add to his mark from 16? So I'm semi-obsessed with this question. Wisconsin's a great example because, you know, uh, in 2008, Colorado was the state that kind of you knew if you won that, you were going to be okay. In 2012, we kind of looked at Virginia. Now you would say Wisconsin would be the tipping point, the most swing state. I think Pluff and I could agree to that um, in our in our battleground state debates. Arizona's close, right? But yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Arizona's close. But t- today you'd still say the one state that you know we could be standing up, sitting up at night waiting for an election night would probably be Wisconsin. And and I think you gotta assume, given Bush in Ohio, that um, in 2004, being able to expand the electorate and put another 100,000 in. Uh, the number that I think we ought to assume is 1.6. And if he, and, and 1.6 then makes it dicey for Democrats to get to a win there. Um, but you got to assume and really try to pull some of these uh, things off. I have all these Democrats now not all, but I was on a call with a bunch of donors today and they were all like, Jim, Trump's never going to survive because these economic things, dun, 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 no, no president wins re-election. You know, look at Bush in 92, you know, look at Carter in 1980. Pluff and I are the only people who, uh, we were not alive, I would like to remind people, but people forget that Roosevelt won at the height of the economic uh, depression against a a talented governor and actually won more votes than he did four years before. So let's not get all crazy on this, you know, we're going to be fine because the economy's going south thing. I think we have to assume that you're going to have a fully functioning Donald Trump. Uh, and I think in Wisconsin, you ought to assume you need 1.6 million votes. I agree with that because, you know, while his ceiling uh, is not super high, his floor uh, is not super low. 
And no matter what the atmospherics are and where the economy is, um, particularly if he's largely basing his increase in vote on registration and turnout of NACA like voters, you know, he's going to get, you know, I agree with that. I mean, to me, if you think Donald Trump's going to get 10 votes in a precinct, you better assume you're building a campaign to win when he gets 12. Like, I just think that's what we're up against here. So let's then turn to the Biden campaign. So they ultimately, all the work they're doing, all the money people are going to contribute and the time they're going to give is to get that vote number they need in, you know, the six to seven battleground states. So, you know, Jim, I'm just curious, given the advantages of money, of resources, of data, of time that Trump as an incumbent has, what are the most important priorities for the Biden campaign? And I, I would say, like, let's not even say between now and June, really between now and the end of this month in April, where do they need to be to put themselves in the best position to win? Well, first of all, I would I would want to do two things. I would want to continue to hone uh, an economic and forward thinking message that works in a general election. You know, when you look back and Pluff and I've studied presidential politics as much as anyone has. And what you realize is the winner of these presidential elections is usually the people who win the forward-thinking vision on where you're going to take the country. So I think just from a you know grand messaging standpoint, that's the work that you have to do. And I remember, David, after the 2008 primary win, which is the longest primary in the history of American politics, you know, while you were trying to build a general election machine, you know, the team spent a bunch of time doing that and they mm-hmm. need to do that. And he really needs to look deep inside, you know, what he wants to say about the country, about where he's going to take them. Um, Cause that's frankly where, you know, we lost last time, right? Voters, swing voters believe that Donald Trump was better on economic future stuff than Hillary Clinton. And we lost in a, a very close election because of it. The second thing is I think the Biden campaign has to view uh, the next month as, as a time to ask their people to help. And what I mean by that is they're now the presumptive Democratic nominee for president. And you have all these people trapped in their homes who are sitting here all day, every day doing two things, um, sitting online and, and watching TV and hanging out with their family, right? And so I would be kind of building a virtual national field operation where I asked all of my supporters, and I, you have to give them content, you have to give them things to do. And I would ask them to begin talking to their friends and family, their social networks, um, beginning to reach out and say, this is why I'm supporting Joe Biden. This is why he should be president of the United States. Can't can you get all of your Facebook friends to sign up on the, on emails? Can you incentivize people to do that? Can you begin getting them to give $2? Because we know if you give $2, you'll give an average of, you'll give 2.8 more contributions between now and the campaign. Can you use this time to begin building this digital army that, that uh, President Trump already has? Um, I think that absolutely has to occur. Um, and I think it'd be the, my number one priority if I was sitting in the Biden campaign. I agree with that. How about battleground states? So the most important decision a presidential campaign makes, in my view anyway, is determining where the field of battle is. So if you're the Biden campaign and, you know, they have access to their own data and, you know, they have a little bit more information than you and I have, but you know these states exceedingly well, what do you think their battleground state map should be? So let me let me just step back, David, and challenge you with a question, because this is something I've thought about, um, is what kind of campaign are you running in these battleground states? 
Because I think, you know, the campaigns that you and I both ran, and God knows they were exquisitely run, but the truth is we had the best candidate in, in recent memory, um, you know, were really heavy internet and field-based campaigns, right? And we built massive infrastructures to turn out and persuade voters. And, you know, Vice President Biden a few weeks ago hired a new campaign manager who used to work for Pluff and I, who is as talented as a field operative as had, has ever existed in democratic politics. And I think they were on the way to building that kind of thing. And the question I keep coming back to is, in a COVID reality, can you build that? Like, is that really what you're building? And, you know, can you knock on doors and can you do the traditional field things that Pluff and I believe so deeply in? And, you know, a quick ad for Pluff's book. Um, if you've read Pluff's book, you know, and if you haven't, please go buy it. Um, that, you know, he talks about a lot of things you all can do at home to do this. And so, David, before we talk about the states, what do you think about the answer to that question? Well, I actually think it can work to the Biden campaign's benefit because they now have to plan for two scenarios, maybe three. One is, you know, you're never doing rallies with a candidate and you're not able to do door knocking and canvassing. The other is we do get back to normal and that continues through the fall and you're able to do those traditional things. And then the third might be a blend, right? Where certain times you are, certain times you're not, or certain states you can and certain states you can't. So um, that's challenging. You know, we're talking about all the time advantages that Trump has and all the things Biden has to do to catch up. Now you add in you know, scenario planning for like three different kind of campaigns. I do not envy them. Right. But the truth is they have to prepare for one where you're not doing door knocking and canvassing and in-person phone banks. So I think they can benefit from that because they then have to say, we need to build a virtual digital campaign that can win on its own. And if you're able then to layer in door knocking and canvassing and in-person phone banks, that's the stuff Jen uh, O'Malley Dillon and, and others on that team know so well, right? So I actually think that they have to spend the next few weeks um, figuring out how do we build the best digital virtual. As you said, I agree with that. If if we don't all don't get an email soon from Joe Biden asking us to do something, I think it's a missed opportunity. So my sense is they have to be prepared for different scenarios, but they know they have to prepare for one that's all digital, all virtual. So I think they will be strengthened for that so that if they can add in the more traditional voter contact elements, um, they're ready for that. Well, let me press on that just because it's your show and I like screwing with you. Um, so as a campaign manager, when you're hiring field organizers, do you agree with me that you'd care more about digital skills than you would history of door knocking? Yes. Yeah. I do. I do. And by the way, that's probably the way every campaign should hire forever more. Right. And if those people are their own individualized creators of content and messengers. And, you know, they are the local candidate, even more so than they were uh, historically when they always played an important role in that way. So I think that's right. I think if, if they can't organize uh, digitally, if they are not skilled with content creation and distribution locally, if they are not capable of building a team that's doing relational organizing, yeah, I, I agree. There's probably not a home for them. It's a great question. Yeah. And it's totally different than the campaigns you and I ran not very long ago. Right. So what do you, what do you think the final list? And, and let's caveat with this with the, I'm not talking about like bullshit, head fake, you know, maybe we'll play here. Like where is the rubber going to hit the road? All right. So this now listeners at home, you're going to hear Jim Messina, David Pluff disagree. All right. So I'm going to put them in, in, um, 
buckets. And I think the, the first bucket is Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. You have to lock down the formerly known as blue wall states, and that has to be priority uh, number one. Um, then I would put the second bucket um, as, as Florida and Arizona um, together, a little bit ahead of North Carolina. Um, the Trump campaign is working overtime to put Minnesota uh, into play um, and New Mexico. I promise you one thing about New Mexico. If Donald Trump wins New Mexico, I'm also going to win America's top model. Um, I just don't see that occurring, but you got to watch um, uh, Minnesota. And then I, as David well knows, have long been obsessed with North Carolina. And I think North Carolina is one of the future states that we have to win in the future, the way Virginia and Colorado were four and eight years ago. Um, so that's currently what I think. There's other head fakes. We haven't talked about Iowa and Ohio. Plus, I'd be interested in your opinion on both those um, you know, going forward. So now disagree. No, actually, I think I largely agree with that. I mean, I, I probably put Arizona – on the same level as Wisconsin, just because I see a scenario, and maybe we won't do this, but we win Michigan, we win Pennsylvania, we know Wisconsin's tougher, toughest of those three. If we fall short, we have to have the backup, and you know Arizona's got eleven electoral votes, Wisconsin has ten. I agree with you; we should not give up on Florida, and I think that you know the numbers are there in North Carolina. I put us as the underdog, but it's a large enough state. And we know if we do all the parts of a campaign, you have to do well, registration, turnout, and persuasion, you can get close. So I'm generally agree that those are the six. I think they'll take a close look at Georgia. My guess is they'll find a way to get within a point or two in their models, but that doesn't get you any electoral votes. But my question for you, so I generally agree with that. But you know, the thing that's, that keeps me up at night, uh, aside from you know Trump you know, is handling mishandling of COVID is you know, us winning, the map stays the same. We get Michigan and we get Pennsylvania back, but we just come up short in Wisconsin. And I think we can win, win Wisconsin. I want to be very, very clear about that. I think there's a pathway to win Wisconsin, but you need to have backups and real backups. So my question for you, though, was on Minnesota. Do you see a scenario where Trump wins Minnesota, but at the same time is losing Wisconsin and Michigan? No. So these are so Minnesota then is not a tipping point state and neither is New Mexico. Correct. Right. So the question is, is there a scenario where uh, Georgia would be a tipping point state for us? I don't see that. No, I don't um, either. You know, same thing for Texas. I, ho I think by the end of the decade, maybe certainly by the beginning of the one after that. But right now, I think you've got to stick to your knitting. And it's those six, I think, that are going to require. And I know, listen, there are people that believe we can't win Florida. I think Joe Biden is a good Florida candidate. I do too. Um, I'm worried about their ability to register the number of voters that they have to register and the kind of turnout they need. But, you know, the math would suggest that they ought to give a fighting chance there. Now, of course, that's like a, what do you think, an $80, $100 million decision? So it's not a small decision, but. Yeah, we spent $63 million in 2012. Hillary spent 80 And so I think it's a $100 million decision. Um, and more importantly than that, it's a now decision right. because you, you've got to build, whether it's a traditional infrastructure or a digital infrastructure in Florida, you got to do that. And the additional hurdle is if you look at Donald Trump's poll ratings, and I think it's fair to say Pluff and I are skeptical of polling, but if you look at Donald Trump's poll ratings in all the battleground states, he's always been one to three points better in Florida than every other battleground state. And partially that is he is not only now a registered voter there, he's down there a bunch. Um, and, you know, it's just harder. That said, you know, we won Florida twice 
with Obama and both times people, you know, didn't think we were going to win. The other reason you have to, in my opinion, play in Florida is you and I can contrive crazy scenarios where you lose Minnesota and you win the other ones. There's no Trump scenario where he can lose Florida and win the presidency. Right. And so I think you just got to throw the kitchen sink. There's one other thing I wanted to say to to agree with you on North Carolina and Arizona. There's an additional reason to play there, which is you have down ballot races that are also going to be highly incentivized to turn out every single voter they can get their hands on. You have probably the most contested and best fundraised U.S. Senate race in the country in Arizona with Mark Kelly uh, going against the appointed senator. And in North Carolina, you have a very popular Democratic governor up for re-election, and you have one of the hottest Senate races in America. And so you're going to have just, you know, just the R the DSCC and the and the uh, Republican Senate campaign both put down sixteen million dollars each last week in TV ad spending just in North Carolina, and so you start to say, okay, if you're going to have all that infrastructure, you know, then why wouldn't you play in the presidential level? And so I think you know, and you're going to have the money to do it. So I think you're going to see real campaigns in Arizona and North Carolina, whereas if if the candidate wasn't Joe Biden, if it were, you know, some of the other primary candidates, you might not know, not play there, but Joe Biden probably is a very good North Carolina candidate. He definitely is a good Florida candidate. And we'll see about Arizona. Now, are those any of those sort of top tier six battleground states, if you cannot do in-person campaigning, if you can't do canvassing, uh, if you can't do in-person phone banking, are there any of those that you worry would potentially fall off the list or really become notably harder to win if we lose all the toolbox? Um, the one that worries me is Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to say the answer to this question would be Michigan, but I do a lot of stuff with Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan, who understands that state deeply. Um, and she just believes that Trump's economic stuff is too difficult there. Um, I think, you know, Pennsylvania numbers on election night were the first sign to me that we had problems uh, with the turnout numbers, you know, kind of where the African-American turnout was. Um, I, I would just want every single field ability for reasons that are not fully understanding to me. Pennsylvania is a field state where you really do need to do a bunch of field stuff. Um, and, you know, the Obama campaigns, both of them invested deeply in those things. And that's the one state that I get nervous about. Um, Pluff, what do you think? No, I agree with that. And then I think even though a lot of the targets in Florida are younger and so you can reach them digitally, as you know, you you got to pound the streets in that massive state pretty hard <laughs> to do the kind of registration. So, so that would worry me. Um, but you just got to organize around it. So we talked about, um, you know, this at least perceived, I think it's real arrogance of the Trump campaign. Um, but one thing that sort of is clear is they understand that there's no an easy route to victory. So I want to ask you a question. How worried should the Biden campaign be and what should they do? So by, you know, Trump's clearly trying to peel off two to four uh, percent of Biden's African-American male support, uh, particularly older, uh, more conservative Latinos in these battleground states. You know, Trump is doing vaping ads to suburban you know swing voters. So while the Trump campaign, I think, does portray 
the view that they could never lose. They're an impenetrable rock fortress. Their actions suggest that they realize that they got to grab votes from everywhere they can find them. And so that can seem like whack-a-mole if you're in a campaign. But that being said, if this does come down to, you know, eight to 10,000 votes per state, every one of them is going to matter. So how should the Biden campaign approach some of these efforts by the Trump campaign that aren't like wholesale, but they're super surgical? Yeah, look, uh, on uh, your your first question is how worried should they be? I'd be really worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I'd be really worried is just feels very Obama-like, right? It's something that we would have done to say, how do we get one or two more points? Right. You know, just a reminder to people, um, you know, both Obama campaigns invested deeply in rural organizing, and we did five points better in rural counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Florida than Hillary Clinton. And those five points really mattered in in elections where we barely won Florida the second time, barely won some of those states. Um, And her slide in those states made it more difficult. Um, And I do think some of the surgical stuff they're doing with uh, with some of these communities is really good. What I would do, and I and I think there's huge opportunities, is I would do a similar thing, uh, and I would try to run up the score with suburban women. Uh, in a way that that we haven't yet seen the Biden campaign be able to do because they're just getting their sea legs. But I think you've got to expand some numbers on your own, right? I would I would heavily contest the Latino world for a variety of reasons. And I think given the president's racial rhetoric, you have a very compelling case to make to the African-American communities to hold uh, Trump down. But they're, you know, I saw an African-American ad one of my staffers sent me today using a Kanye quote, you know, they were moving around Florida for Trump voters, young Trump African-Americans. You got to take that shit seriously. And you have to have a real surrogate program and deal with some of this stuff. But I would also try to go on the offense and really say, okay, how did the Democrats just win the House in 2018? We got historic levels of support and turnout um, with suburban women. And, you know, part of why Hillary lost a very close election was the numbers they thought they were going to get with suburban women weren't the numbers they got. Mm-hmm. And they had they had sliding at the last 96 hours. And I would really focus on those numbers, seeing if I could drive it up. A, because again, we know we just did two years ago. And B, I just think that Trump's record and the way he is with those voters are super able to go straight at him. And I'd try to run the numbers up. Right. So we have to do both of these things. But what do you think will be easier for Joe Biden to do? Is it to get some of those rural numbers? He's probably not going to get him back to what Barack Obama got, but get him closer. Or, you know, I think there's a lot of attention on rural and exurban, understandably, because you mentioned five points, but there's some rural counties where the swing was 40 points, just massive, unheard of swings. But it was also blue collar counties. So, you know, we won Erie County by mid-teens and Trump won it. Um, Northampton County uh, on the eastern side of Philadelphia, Trump won. So which of those demographics do you think will come easiest to us? Will it be getting back some of those blue collar voters uh, and winning some of those counties back or uh, narrowing some of the rural margins? I think the easiest ROI is always getting things back you used to have, right? right? So just from an ROI perspective, and you know, we've done some work on this to prove this to be true uh, in some of the stuff I'm doing with one of the super PACs, is just the best ROI, uh, the money you can spend is getting people who used to vote Democrat back. And so I think to Pluff's question, 
my opinion is the people who sort of voted for Barack Obama, then voted for Donald Trump, and then came to the Democrats in the midterm elections in these battleground states, those are the first voters I would go to. I kind of am with you, David, that I think it's tough to imagine getting to an Obama-level number, no matter who the nominee is, in some of these rural counties for a variety of reasons. Um, I would want to start with the sort of blue-collar voters who uh, were interested in Trump's um, economic message and now have really compelling reasons to understand that it was all full of shit. But you have to do it both. And also, to your point, um, max out the suburban number like we did in 18. So, I mean, that's I think sometimes there's a really false and dangerous debate in our party of swing versus base or even among swing, what are you picking? Like Joe Biden has to have the money and the smarts and the messaging and the staff and the resources to do it all, right? I mean, that's uh, because Trump's going to. Right. And here's the, there's this debate in our party about base versus swing. And if, and you know, I just think it's a silly debate on both sides, because if you look at the three Democrats who won the presidency in my lifetime, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, they did both. And to beat Donald Trump, you were going to have to do both. And so I think you're totally right, David. We have to do both. Well, it's a simple mathematical exercise, too. So if Donald Trump is going to get north of 1,600,000 votes in Wisconsin, use that example again, we can't get there just through one avenue. Uh, you know, we have to put all those pieces together. So last question for you, Jim. This has been a great conversation. So you mentioned uh, you're, you're volunteering some of your time to help American Bridge. I uh, was doing some really great work in the presidential campaign. Um, there's obviously a lot of other organizations out there. A lot of our discussion is focused on what Joe Biden needs to do, and, and that is the most important question. But but because Trump is an incumbent, because he's got a money and organizational and data advantages, because our convention's now later, what do you think the super PAC and IE side, of, you know, on the Democratic side, needs to do over the next four months? What does success look like? It's a great question, right? And, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, as I know you have. Um, I think that, you know, Joe Biden has a really singular task, which is he's got to go tell his story and move his economic message and his message about why he should be the president of the United States. And I think the super PAC world, um, while we're going through this tough time on COVID, while uh, Trump has this huge spending advantage, has to hold Donald Trump down and cannot allow Donald Trump to begin to, to talk to these voters by himself and begin spending unprecedented amounts of time and money, both digitally, TV ads, kind of every, you can pick the platform. We've got to be competitive and we have to kind of, if we could just play to a draw, if we could get from now to the four months from now when we're, when we're at the convention, either virtual or in person uh, and saying, okay, here we go into the general election. If we could just put Trump exactly where he is politically, poll numbers, et cetera, um, I think the super PAC world will have done a very, very good job. And when you say hold him accountable, is that entirely negative messaging and content? Do you think some of it should be comparative? What's your view on that? Um, I think it has to be both, right? I don't think it's mm -hmm. just negative because I think part of the Biden challenge is going to be to get his own stuff out there, right? Right, um, right. And, and, you know, I think the other side has to help. And I think we have to do, um, you know, the, the, the comparison is so rich and so easy to make that I think you're strengthened. Um, by making it and and doing some comparison. I'm all for lopping off, you know, going straight negative. You know, I love that stuff. But I do think comparative has 
um, some important between now and the time when Biden can sort of get his sea legs. Because I think you do sort of need to start telling the story. Yeah, good advice. Well, Jim Messina, thank you for joining us. I know that you're eager for uh, our country to snap back. Uh, you're also eager for baseball season to start. Um, <laughs> Go I'm Yankees! Eager for that too, so I can know, so I can see the Yankees underperform and not make the playoffs, <laughs> even if it's a remote season in Arizona. Uh, it will be fun to uh, to ping you with messages about how they're underperforming. I wonder, are you wearing a Derek Jeter jersey while we're taping this podcast? <laughs> no, I'm wearing a Montana Grizzly uh, jersey. Uh, as there I always we go. Do. Always on message. All right, Jim, thank you for your time and all the work you're doing in the cycle, and I'm sure we'll have you back on. All right, David, thanks. So I think that conversation with Jim, as Democrats were listening to this, some of it should give you concern. Some of it should give you optimism. But that's largely where we are. This is going to be a close election. <laughs> and, you know, Trump brings some advantages into this race that Jim uh, talked about, uh, organizational advantages, data advantages, uh, digital advantages. And, you know, I think Jim made a really important point, which is some of the things that might have been available to incumbent presidents in the past to advantage themselves in a reelection. You know, we wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Lawyers told us it was illegal or we just knew it was wrong. Trump's going to have no such compass. And so anything and everything he can do, including we saw this week, uh, getting rid of the inspector general who was supposed to oversee the spending of the stimulus package. Trump clearly intends to turn that into a political candy jar, as Jim Messina put it. Um, I'm sure he also intends to divert some money to his own properties and businesses. So once again, a reminder that if you thought Trump could reach a new low, there is no low. And so the advantages that an incumbent brings in uh, to a race like this, I think Jim captured really well that Trump may have more just because he's not going to be bound by precedent or by law. And, you know, I think it was really interesting to have the battleground state conversation with Jim. We were largely in alignment there. I think Jim probably a little bit more confident about Wisconsin than I am. I agree we can win Wisconsin, and I think it is the tipping point state right now. But I think we have to plan for a scenario where we come up short so that an Arizona or North Carolina or Florida could bail us out. It was also interesting to talk to Jim about what this campaign will look like if you don't have the ability to do door knocking, if you don't have the ability to do in-person phone banking, if you don't have the ability to do in-person campaign events. You know, I don't think it changes things in a fundamental way, but it does change things on the margins. And, you know, some of these states, I think you might suffer a little bit more if you're Joe Biden from not having um, that. You know, Trump will also suffer. Clearly, he gets such nourishment from rallies. And if he doesn't have that outlet, you know, I think it's going to cause problems for him. But I think um, that bears closer scrutiny and closer scientific and academic research uh, to really understand what the effects could be. You know, there are some states where, you know, campaign work is important everywhere. But, you know, particularly if you're really reliant on some in-person um, interactions to register enough voters, and if you don't have that, um, you know, what does that mean? So um, I also thought, you know, Jim made a really good point that, you know, the Biden campaign, and I've spoken to this, but I think Jim really drilled into, you know, the Biden campaign really needs to start asking everyone in the country um, who's committed to defeating Trump, Democrat or not, to do something and do something soon. And so I think um, we should all be eagerly refreshing our inboxes uh, and looking at our text messages for the day we get a message uh, saying, I'm Joe Biden, and I'd, I'd like to ask you to do this. I'd like to, you to sign up. I'd like you to be a precinct captain in Wisconsin. So the clock's ticking there because Donald Trump's organization in these battleground states, maybe not at full fighting level, but, you know, he's closer 
to that standard than Joe Biden is. So I think that that's going to be uh, critically important. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation, give you a window in uh, to the kind of campaign that Donald Trump has built, the kind of campaign that Joe Biden needs to build, uh, because ultimately all of you hopefully are going to be active in some of those decisions the campaigns are making now and where they're deciding to apply resources and where they're really going to stress, you know, investment in an activity uh, is obviously important to the bottom line of whether we can win or not, but also for you as shareholders and stakeholders, critically important. So hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to being back with you next week.